You know, when students come to our Girls Who Code program, none of them have coded before. And during the first week, a student will call her teacher over and she'll say, I don't know what code to write. And the teacher will look at her screen and she'll see a blank text editor. But when the teacher presses undo on the computer, she sees, oh, that she actually wrote something and then deleted it. So instead of the student saying to her teacher, hey, I wrote a line of code. I think the semicolon's in the wrong place. Can you help me? What did I do wrong? She rather show nothing at all. So it's this idea of perfection or bust. Besharam, Batamiz, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Jalahata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast. This multi award winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos from sex, sexuality, mental health, menopause, to nipple hair, and more. This season is a US special, and it took me by surprise. You see, I interviewed these incredible South Asian American women. I expected to hear some angst around identity and belonging. Instead, they told me how comfortable they were with both their South Asian and American identity. I confess, this is not the podcast season I set out to record. It's so much more powerful. I found talking with Reshma Sojani so inspiring. She is a leading activist and the founder of Girls Who Code, as well as founder and CEO of Moms First, formerly Marshall Plan for Moms. Reshma began her career as an attorney and democratic organizer. In 2010, she surged into the political scene as the first Indian-American woman to run for U.S. Congress. She has spent more than a decade building movements to fight for women and girls' economic empowerment. Most recently, Reshma has been advocating for policies to support moms impacted by the pandemic. Reshma is also the author of international bestseller Brave Not Perfect, her influential TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has had more than 5 million views globally. Do you see what I mean when I say she's inspiring? My parents came here as refugees from Uganda in 1973 uh, with a huge family in Africa. Uh, the vast majority of them ended up in England. But my parents, who had just recently been arranged, because they were both engineers, they got the opportunity to come to the United States. And so they decided to come to the Midwest. That's where they built a life for themselves. And so, you know, I grew up in America in the 80s where there wasn't a lot of brown people. There certainly weren't people whose names were Reshma. And my parents <laughs> didn't know anybody. And so they really, they struggled. They found this like small tight-knit uh, Ugandan Asian community that we were then friends with and we would like meet with every weekend and participate in Garba Ras, you know, d during Navrati and like, yeah. so, you know, childhood was a lot about trying to fit in uh, mm -hmm. and feel like I belonged when I didn't belong. I think what happens for us is I think you pretend to be white back then because there just aren't enough people who look like you. You don't have a strong enough community, right? Now, you know, it's different now. But back then, you didn't see people who looked like you on television. There was never a, never have I ever. 
Uh, there wasn't mm-hmm. a Mindy Kaling, right? There wasn't a Priyanka Chopra. There wasn't any of that. Mm-hmm. You didn't open up a magazine. You didn't think you were attractive. You didn't think you were, mm-hmm. you know, not anything. And people made fun of you. I mean, bullying, hate crimes were really real. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in the beginning, you really tried to make yourself small. Mm-hmm. I reached a breaking point where I had like a schoolyard fight where I got beat up. You know what I mean? For basically being a brown girl. And it was a revelation for me that I can't be white, that I have to wow. be me. And it really kind of unleashed activism and being an activist and fighting for those who don't have a voice or fighting for those that are vulnerable. So it was such a, in many ways, it was such a gift. I don't, I know, I think that if I didn't grow up that way, being bullied, being harassed, really seeing kind of racial hate up close and personal, I don't know if I'd be doing the work that I'm doing right now. Um, Because at the same time, so much of that came with so much love. You know, and yeah. so in a community, other parts of the community, right, that really yeah. embraced you. And it also, you know, is a lesson on how we always move towards progress yeah. and how things today are different, you know, than when I was yeah. growing up. Do you remember any instances you mentioned this bullying? What's the kind of, I mean, we don't need to get into the details of that if it's painful, but what are the sort of things that were said to you? When you were a child. Well, you know, back then they called you a haji, right? That was what a derogatory. Haji? haji is basically a derogatory name for a brown person. Or right. it was like, you smell like curry. Or they called mm-hmm. you a dothead. Those were kind of the terms, right, that were used. Go back to your own country. Mm-hmm. Um, those were kind of the terms that were used for, you know, the South Asian people. You know what I mean? The derogatory terms or the racial slurs, right? That was what was really used against us then and you know I heard them all the time growing up and I think that one day I decided I was going to fight back and I was going to meet these two girls you know for a schoolyard fight and I got beaten up pretty badly and I remember you know when I went home my friend had kind of dragged me home a big black guy it was the day before eighth grade graduation and I remember my mother just crying and looking at my father saying you brought us here and um, they didn't call the police they didn't call the school you know, because they were immigrants. And part of what I had yeah. done was violated the, the you know, the family pact, which was to make yourself small. Don't call attention to yeah. yourself. You know what I mean? And don't don't fight back, basically. Yeah. Right. Don't stand up for yourself. Make yourself invisible. And mm-hmm. I think for me, it was very much the beginning of not doing that anymore, you know, and yeah. really and, and wearing kind of my my thisiness like very loud and proud. Right. And very kind of out in the open. I wasn't not trying to be anybody but Reshma. I was not trying to hide the fact that I was a Hindu. I was not trying to hide the fact that, you know what I mean? This was my culture and I was proud of it. How old were you at this point, Reshma? So probably what, 12, 13? That's amazing. A lot of kids at that age haven't got that, I guess, gumption because you're trying so hard to fit in. You're trying so hard to find, find your tribe, make friends, all of that. I mean, hats off to having that kind of courage at that kind of age. That's incredible. So tell me the journey from that point on to this, I don't know, incredible career you've got. Like, I'm just reading it out. There's just so many things I had to write it down. Lawyer, politician, civil servant. I'm going to say coding expert because I don't know the words for it. (laughs) But so many, so many things. So talk us through how you went from that 12-year-old girl taking on the bullies to, to all of these fantastic things. Well, I mean, that that experience really set off a career of activism. So I started building organizations. The first 
organization I built was the Prejudice Reduction Interested Students Movement. I started really leaning into public speaking, you know, mm-hmm. and gaining, uh, going, you know, my debate club, et cetera. I knew that I wanted to be an activist, you know, an organizer. And then when I got to college, you know, I saw that kind of upfront, right? Activism. I went to the, a, a big university. You had this thing at the, you know, called the Quad, and so it's where people kind of spoke out. That at that time we were fighting against apartheid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fighting against um, the contract with America. You know, so it, I really was like, remember walking by one day, being like, "Oh, that's me. That's what I want to be. I want to be out there." You know what I mean? And so I, that was like, I, again, like for me, there was that was the through line that I was mm-hmm. always speaking out. I was always organizing. I was starting organizations. I knew that I wanted, you know, to be a warrior. And I knew that I thought that that would come in the form of being a lawyer. I always wanted to go to law school. And in some ways, I think, so I went, you know, went to college and I decided I wanted to go to law school. Part of that end of that experience, got exposed to politics, you know, became, you know, an intern in the White House, you know, met Hillary Clinton, ended up going to the Kennedy School of Government, got my master's in public policy, was really passionate about fighting against apartheid, lived in South Africa for a while, you know, worked on that, you know, after Mandela came to power, then went to law school, then graduated in a, in a lot of debt. And then I got off path. You know, I think sometimes what, what happens, and I think a lot of young people can resonate with this, is like when you're saddled with student loan debt, the thing you always wanted to do that wanted to make you take up that debt in the first place is no longer in your reach because you have to pick other jobs that pay more so that you can pay off the loans. And then I think I entered kind of like this 10 year period where my activism was my side hustle. You know, I was still working on campaigns. I'm still organizing, but it wasn't my job. And my job was really just like choking me and choking the life Mm -hmm. out of me. What was the job at that point? I'm a corporate lawyer. I hate it. You know what I mean? Then I'm working at a financial, you know, at a financial services organization as a lawyer. I hate it. Right. None of it is, but all of it is in pursuit of trying to make money mm-hmm. so I can pay off my student loans. Yeah. And I think for a while when you're young, you're like, oh, I got time, right? I got time to pursue the dream, to pursue the destiny, pursue what you're put on this earth to do. And I think yeah. I woke up kind of at age 33 being like, I don't have all that much time anymore, right? I'm not young. And mm-hmm. that is when, you know, for me, I decided to quit my job and take the leap and run for United States Congress. And I was the first... South Asian American woman to ever run, just wild, for United States Congress. And it was the best experience of my life. It's incredible. That was literally the next question I was going to ask you because I read about that and I was like, wow, the first ever South Asian American woman to run for Congress. What was that like? What was it like for you in your own mind? What was that like for other people, your family, people around you? It was terrifying for me. And it was irritating probably for my family at first. You know, again, <laughs> going back to that point about making yourself small. It, my mother was yeah. like, why are you doing that? What? You know, I think when you're younger, you're naive enough to think that you can make anything happen. You don't do the same kind of cost-benefit analysis. I really yeah. thought I could make, sh- you know, shake every hand, meet every voter. And I had this ragtag group of friends and then, you know, campaign staff. What I was doing at that time was very rebellious. Nobody ran. I was running in a Democratic primary. So nobody did that. And especially no brown girl did that. Mm-hmm. So it then attracted, like, attracted people who were excited about somebody that was a disruptor, 
like an outsider. And so many people who worked on that campaign are still working, work with me now, you know what I mean? And are in my life and are my dearest, closest friends and mentees. So in many ways, I've attracted a lot of really great people because I really thought that I could like, like I said, meet every voter, shake every hand. And all the stuff that I was doing, I had never done before. So I had never given a campaign speech. I had never walked into a room and just talked about, you know, my policy ideas. I had never raised money before. I had never gone on television. You know, I had my first interview on like primetime NBC. Uh, so everything I had done, I had never done before. I never hired people, right? And now I had to hire an entire campaign staff. You, you know, when you run a campaign, it's like starting and shutting down a business in a span of 10 months. And so I wow. had to learn how to be a good manager. I had to learn how to identify talent. I had to, you know what I mean? I had to learn how to build a plan. I had to learn how to trust people, right? So the whole experience was just incredible. Like, and, and, and I would argue still in many ways, some of the ten best months of my life because mm. it was all um, really terrifying. And I think the older I've gotten, the more I've realized, like, I love hard things. And I love scary things. Like for me, I actually feel the most alive when I wake up and be like, how do I freaking do this? You know what I mean? How am I going to figure this out? It actually makes me feel like I'm an intellectually curious person. And so I think it, it makes it, it like taps into that part of myself that I really love or like enjoy that nerdiness, you know? I've been an activist my entire life. I just didn't know it. When I was younger, I was fighting with my family for the right to wear what I wanted, to cut my hair short, to not have an arranged marriage. Basically, to have the kind of life that I wanted. Now, my activism has a different shape and name and feel. I fight for the rights of South Asian women to have a voice to be heard, to have the sorts of lives we want. My activism powers me up. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. My activism gives my voice the strength to reach the hundreds of thousands of people that I want to. My activism is what I hope to do for the rest of my days on this planet. As I do more and more, some of the projects that I'm involved in terrify me. They excite me and they terrify me. And I'll take that as a good sign. So as if that wasn't enough, you went and set up Girls Who Code in 2012. Tell us what that was about and how that came about. I've got loads of questions around it to ask you, but let's let's start by you telling us how and why. Yeah, so I, you know, I run this race, I lose terribly. And um, I realized I'm not going back to that crappy job that I did not like. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. going to go back to being a corporate lawyer. What can I do in public service? What are the things that I saw on the campaign trail that really moved me? And as part of when I was running for office in 2010, that's when tech was like just starting to grow and it was just starting to build. And when I looked at these tech companies, none of them were run by women, but the consumer base was female. And I was like, what is that about? And then, you know, when I was running for office, I would go into 
public schools and I would go into computer science classes and robotics labs and I would just see lines and lines and lines of boys, not a girl in sight. And because I was not a computer science major, I was like, what's going on? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And it pissed me off because again, as the daughter of refugees, I've been having a job my whole life, you know, from retail to food service to, you know, you, to, you name it. And I knew that like so much of my dad would say, you know, when you grow up, you should be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Of course. Because, of course, right? Because yeah. that was about, for them, being financial security. Yeah. And in 2010, financial security was a tech job, right? This is where the growing industry was. This is where all the opportunity was. And so not seeing girls in those classrooms made me realize, like, like oh, wait a minute. They're not going to get an opportunity to march to the middle mm. class. And so that was really the inspiration when I started Girls Who Code. It was really about creating economic opportunity. You were saying somewhere, I think in one of the articles, that teaching girls how to code has to do with bravery. Like that really stuck with me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, as I'm building Girls Who Code, now 10 years later, we've taught over 600,000 girls to code. But in the middle of it, I get this opportunity to give a TED Talk. For a public speaker or for an activist, like Ted, it's like going to the Super Bowl. Like once in a lifetime, we're yeah. gonna go, you better bring it. And I was like, okay, what do I wanna talk about? And I, there was this kind of story that every Girls Who Code teacher would tell me, and it went something like this, which is, you know, when students come to our Girls Who Code program, none of them have coded before, right? So they're all starting yeah. from this blank slate. And during the first week, a student will call her teacher over and she'll say, I don't know what code to write. And the teacher will look at her screen and she'll see a blank text editor. So if she didn't know any better, she thought that her students spent the past 20 minutes just staring at the screen. Mm. But when the teacher presses undo on the computer, she sees, oh, that she actually wrote something and then deleted it. So instead of the student saying to her teacher, hey, I wrote a line of code. I think the semicolon's in the wrong place. Can you help me? What did I do wrong? She rather show nothing at all. So it's this idea of perfection or bust. And so I tell this around yeah. the TED stage and I'm inundated with messages of women who say, yeah, I do this too. I erase the code of my life, which means I give up before I even try. So I write a book about it, Brave Not Perfect, do a podcast about it, go on a tour that I'm still talking about. And you know, part of the, the aha for me was that coding is a metaphor for bravery. When students come to our class, they think they're not smart enough to code, they won't be able to do it, they do it, and they get comfortable with failure because all about coding is just iteration, 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 iteration. And so then you're like, wow, like if I can do that, what are all the other things that I can do that I've talked myself out of? Yeah. And it unleashes a lifetime of bravery. And when I, when, I, when, I, when I mean bravery, I don't mean bravery of like even running for office or saving a baby from a burning building, but the bravery to raise your hand when you don't know exactly what the answer is. You know, the bravery when you're walking down the street and someone bumps into you for you to, for you not to say, oh, I'm sorry, right? It's yes. the bravery in all the small moments of our life that we need to be able to like tap into, unleash, exercise. So when like the big moments come, we're ready. A hundred percent. And I think you touched upon this and I've kind of thought about this and read about it so much because that bravery is what lets you or doesn't let you put your hand up in a classroom or apply for a job in the office or speak up in a meeting. All of these come from the same place, don't they? Yeah. Because 
as women, I think you say this, we're socialized towards perfection. So in our heads, we've got to be like a thousand percent before we even kind of put our hand up. Exactly. I mean, that's you what know? is happening when you're in a room and you're it's you're listening or a meeting or a lecture or whatever, and they say, "Or oh, anybody have any questions?" You may have a hundred questions in your mind, but you're thinking, well, "What's the question that I'm going to sound smart? What's the question that I'm going to ask that yes. people aren't going to think it's dumb?" Right? Like you're you're trying yeah. to get the answer right, even to ask a question. Yes. And so that is something we deeply have been socialized to do and we really have to unlearn because failure is just a gift. It's a privilege. Like you don't learn unless you fail and you don't learn unless you ask questions. So if you think asking a question is making you sound not smart and so you're terrified of asking a question, then you're just going to gravitate towards the things that you know how to do. And you're, so you're never going to grow. And, yeah. and that is like deeply problematic, I think, for, for us scaling, you know, our potential. And so, the, you know, it's funny. It's like we are all as women qualified, if not overqualified, mm. right, for most of the things, if not all yeah. the things that we do. But still kind of we question ourselves because we don't question. And it's, it's kind of so we think that like we're out of the joke, right, or we don't have the information or something else is going on right? Because we don't kind of ask the questions to get the knowledge to recognize, oh, no, no, I got this. And I suspect it's also, one is we're socialized to do this. And also when you kind of look at how boys and girls are brought up, boys are told to go and, you know, jump and fail. And it's okay, you fall down, you get the bruises, you come back and you try again. So you see kind of boys at all ages kind of just going for it without really worrying about it yeah whereas girls every little thing and I know this every woman I know you know pretty much can I do this what happens if this doesn't go right you know this whole kind of tsunami of questions and self-doubt before you've even stepped out you know well also because we have a learned swag you yes. know like I the story I tell in my book too is like you know when boys are little I was at my son's class this morning and the swag that they have at eight, <laughs> the confidence, the bravado, right? And yeah. and that's how they're encouraged, right? Whereas we're yeah. encouraged to be likable, to be small, yes. to be yes. humble, to be kind, yes. to be you know, yeah. you know, and so all those things. So we don't we don't develop that sense of swag, right? Yeah. And I wouldn't even call it confidence per se, because it's almost like we kind of know the answer. But yeah. Basically, to say it with a sense of, oh, I got this. I can figure it out, right? Yeah. And boys, you know, the, the story I tell about, like, you know, at an award ceremony, like, boys are, like, t dabbing, like, yeah, me, I got it. I got the award, right? Woo! And girls are like, oh, me? Really? Yeah. And we've kind of been doing that our whole lives. I mean, the oh. amount of times, I know I play tennis, and I make myself be like, that was a baller shot. To myself or to my coach, yeah. right? But yeah. when I'm playing with other women, they're like, I'm a great shot. They're like, oh, I got lucky. Yes. You know, we immediately yes. like have to make our success small. Absolutely. I'm just nodding away because it resonates so deeply with me as well. You know, I started this podcast without kind of knowing anything about podcasting. I've won like a zillion awards and I get written about. But the minute anybody says, oh, your podcast is great. Oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. Or you think? You think? Oh, thanks so much. You know, not that, yes, I work bloody hard for it, you know. 
But it's so difficult. Like, even when I say the words, I feel discomfort in my body. You know, because it's so deeply conditioned. But you have to do it. Like it's so, so you know, I'm stepped off of being CEO of Girls Recruit. I'm building my next movement, Moms First. And I, you know, I'll go to big audiences and I do this intentionally. Mm-hmm. I'll say, you know, as I'm, and I'll, you know, as I'm building my second movement, it's been hard, right? Because investing in women, we don't do. Yeah. You know, no. it's always freaking harder for us, right? It just is. And it has nothing to do with our capability or performance. And so I say, you know, for, I am a, for, in social entrepreneurship, I am the Elon Musk of social entrepreneurs. Like what I built with Girls Who Code with my hands on my own, with on my back, right? Like no one's done. And I figured it out. And I built a scalable organization that's global, you know, and that, that's a model. And, and, and so I have another idea that I've incubated and thought through. It should just be like, okay, where do I send the check? And so I'll say in big groups, like, I'm the social entrepreneur. I'm the Elon Musk of social entrepreneurship. And it's funny, my yeah. my development director's like, every time you say that, I'm like, oh, is she really going to say that? And and, and it's and I'm yeah. sure half the women in the audience are like, yes. damn, like, yes. she said what? But I'm doing that to give you permission to do the same, yeah. right? Because I think that that's, like, the thing we have to turn on its head, which yes. is, like, we've been acting small for too long we've been being grateful for scraps for too long you know we've been shrinking our ability and you know to make other people feel secure for too long and now we have to just be real bold about it you know about Mm. our again our performance what we've achieved right Our, our 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 successes our wins and do you think it's as simple as Talking about it in rooms, talking about it to each other, talking about it in big spaces. How do we do this? The generation ahead of us, it was true. There probably was just one spot for one. So there was a lot of competition. And I think in many ways, that generation knew that to be likable to men, we had to play to their ego and not actually be have all that swag. Things have changed. We are in a new place. And so now... There is plenty of room for all of us. And so you you see that. I don't know if you feel this. I have such a huge sisterhood. I have so much love, so much support, so much from women. I have no feelings of competition or issues. Like, I think we've moved into a different place where we realize, okay, like, we're in the room. Now what? And I think the now what piece is this idea of, like, we have got to basically celebrate our accomplishments and share them with one another right? And, and teach one another how to actually be loud, be bold, take up space. And, and I think that, so, so it's, it's like, you know, it, and, and I think the women, the generation under, like below us, they get it. Even yeah. the way that they just look at themselves in the mirror. You know, yeah. when I looked at myself in the mirror, when I was in my twenties, there was a million, I was like so yeah. horrible to myself. Yeah. yeah. And the way that they even just embrace their own beauty, mm-hmm. And their own bodies yeah. and their own choices. Yes. They don't feel encumbered in the way that we we were. But they still, I think, we're still kind of racked by this sense that we're not at supposed like, you know, we need to be asking the question of like, wait a minute here, like we are seventy five percent of valedictorians, we get twenty percent more vouchers degrees. Like I'm crushing <laughs> it. I know when like I know when I'm in a room, I'm pretty much the smartest person there. What's up? So yeah. Right. Like we, yeah. we like yeah. we need to like sit in that inquiry. Yeah. 
And I, I do think that part of it is about the fact that like we make ourselves seem small. We think yeah. we're not, I mean, I, I have this whole thing about imposter syndrome. I hate the word and I will refuse to use it. And it's all a big lie. And I'm doing a big speech about this, but like, and this is like my thing. Like it's like these, we have to see these as tactics and strategies used against women. And like, yeah. how do we not participate in that anymore? Hey, I wanted to pause this episode for a minute to share something that I'm really excited about. Podcasting changed my life. I went from typing into Google, what is a podcast? Yes, I did that. To creating the multi-award-winning Masala podcast. And now I'd like to share some of my knowledge with you. I'm starting podcasting masterclasses on my website. And one of them has been created especially for women podcasters. Just go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk and look under courses or email me at podcasting at soulsutras.co.uk and I'll share details with you. I look forward to helping you on your podcasting journey. Hi, I'm Kabir. And I'm Yogi. Yes, we are two guys. And yes, we are in love. We are in इंडिया में गे होना और एक गे कपल होना क्या होता है टुगेदर वी विल ट्राई एंड डी कोड अपनी देसी भाषा में विद जेनरस हेल्पिंग ऑफ देसी स्टाइल आशिकी ओनली इन आर पॉडकास्ट शुद्ध देसी गे स्पॉटिफाई ओरिजिनल प्रोड्यूस्ड बाय आर एम वर्ड पिक्चर्स न्यू एपिसोड्स आउट एवरी मंडे व्हेन यू वर टॉकिंग अबाउट सेटिंग अप कंपनीज अगेन देयर समथिंग एल्स यू सेड व्हिच स्टक विद मी दैट मेन एंड वुमेन हु क्रिएट कंपनीज डू इट फॉर डिफरेंट रीजंस and this is this is a while ago i think you said this and you were saying about for men it's uh, they create companies to replace their mothers which made me oh, laugh when i say this yeah <laughs> i know i know i know and women are let's say for the majority kind of more empathy led or conscience led or whatever do you still believe this and and i don't think it's actually a bad thing actually yeah um i think that we see a problem in our actually and i've seen this for my girls for a decade yeah Yeah. They if you go to my if you sit with my students you will know they are 2 years ahead of what's happening in that generation. So like they were talking mm-hmm. about bullying 8 mm-hmm. years ago. They were yeah. talking about climate change 6 yeah. years ago. They were talking yeah. about what's wrong with Instagram, you know, the algorithm. Yeah. 4 years, right? It's so mental health uh. like we're so they're because they're paying attention to what's broken and saying how do I fix yeah. it? And yeah. I think that when same with me as an entrepreneur, right? As a social entrepreneur, I'm fixing things that women are facing. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm basically seeing problems and saying my my playground are women and girls and the and the problems that they experience, the roadblocks that are in front of them. And I think that that happens even in business. There's not enough beauty manufacturers. How do I solve that problem because like I really want to find a better foundation for my skin tone because right now mm-hmm. nothing exists for me, right? Mm-hmm. I you know i'm in the middle of perimenopause right there's not enough products and solutions out mm-hmm. there for me right how do i solve for that but i think that like it's it's really we have a bigger lens on it and i mm-hmm. joke and i think sometimes men are trying to solve their own individual pain point you know i, I joke it's like my husband can't de- multitask the way that i can multitask right but he's a great delegator and so so much about like <laughs> you know entrepreneurship for men is about delegation like yeah. like my husband would be perfectly happy if he could sit in front of his computer and get everything his house cleaned his food delivered his dog walked yeah. Yeah. right yeah. and so like literally yeah. the his world is like how do i do that yeah. and quite frankly 
damn, we should be doing the same thing yeah. because we're doing all this stuff on our own. And yes. if we were better actually about this, we would have more time. Yeah. Playing down my achievements, playing down my successes. I've been doing that for years. As a South Asian woman, I learned very young to play small. So if someone compliments me on a great outfit, I'll say, oh, I just found it. The same goes for my work. Despite having a super successful podcast and winning multiple awards, I will always answer compliments about my work with a, ah, it just happened. Not taking into consideration the years of relentless work that I've put in, the late nights, the quite literally back-breaking work sometimes, the endless learning about podcasting without being from the industry. None of that is taken into consideration. I will admit this to you right here, right now. I really struggle with taking credit for my own successes. However, I'm determined to do things differently. I will take up space. I will own my own voice. And I will own my many, many successes that are surely coming my way. Self-belief is hard enough, but if you're a brown woman, it's a lot harder. Like South Asian, whatever, you know, South Asian American, South Asian British, Indian. Why is it that much harder? It's like this whole another layer of culture. My father never said to me, you are so brilliant. You can do everything. He believed that. What my father yeah. said to me is, you've got to work hard. You know, mm -hmm. when I lost my race, he would send me the 20 things that I did wrong. To this day, I could be on the front page of the New York Times, which I have been, and he won't call me and be like, oh my God, that was amazing. I know he yeah. has it. I know he's yeah. read it. In fact, I will find him often on my talks at the bottom, Mukun Sujani. You know what I mean? Yeah. He knows exactly what I'm doing, exactly what I'm saying, exactly yeah. the thing, the difference that I'm making, but he will never build my ego. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes, right, we need to be told you're great. Of course we do. You're exceptional. You're one in a million. Like, we need to be told that, but it's not the way we've been raised. Now, I would argue, for me, it served me to get that hard, mm -hmm. tough love, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is what drives me. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's put my ego in check. And, and that is a little cultural, right? We are, we are yeah. as a Hindu, right? I serve God, right? Like, this yeah. is not yeah. about me. Yeah. This is about him and what I'm put on this earth to do right? Yeah. In the service yeah. of him. And so I think in that sense, culturally, it's good, but it's, it's not everybody operates that way, mm -hmm. you know? And I've learned this as a, as a CEO, like it's, it's like my dad's basically saying, you know, congratulations for doing your job. Right. But we know that when we're <laughs> managing a team, you have to be like, thank you. That's amazing. You got to send them flowers. You got to like give them yeah. their, you know, their kudos yeah. because yeah. that their recognition, because yeah. that's what motivates people. Absolutely. And I guess culturally, because we're taught that, oh, your ego will get too big or, you know, we never praise the kids because, oh, that, you know, what is it that say your, your head will get too big for your body. But I think, I think personally that it would be nicer if we change that a little bit about our culture that we told our kids that, hey, my God, what a well, you know, whatever that animal you just drew is amazing or whatever, you know, 
And I think the other thing in our culture, and I've been thinking about this a lot as a mother, our culture, like, we don't hug. We don't kiss. No. We don't say I love you. We withhold affection. And, you know, I used to, when I start, first started having, when I first had my children, my son would literally just stare at me all the time. It used to freak me out, that, like, focus. Or, you know, my kids are super attached to me all the time. They're on top of me. You know what I mean? My kids, my dog, my husband, everybody. You know what I mean? And I'm, like, picking one off by the other. <laughs> and it used to sometimes bother me because I didn't feel like I had time to breathe. And a friend of mine said, if your biggest problem is your kids love you too much, you don't have any problems. And I realized, too, that, like, for me, I do. And I also now suffocate them with love mm. in the way that I didn't get that same type of yeah. attention, yeah. affection, affection, I yeah. should say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I realized as I'm watching them, they're so secure and confident. Mm. They don't have, you know, my son could be on a playground. Nobody could play with him. He does not care because he's like, you know what? Mm. My, mo- my mom and dad love me. I got my mm. family. Mm. We missed out on that. Yeah, we did. We did. We really and so did. much of our own insecurities, doubts. Yeah. yeah come from the fact that we were not just unconditionally loved and knew that we were loved, but yeah. we didn't know it, right? That is the generational trauma that we have to not yes. continue. I remember when I was younger and living in India, I'd watch Western films on TV and I'd be amazed that people were constantly hugging and kissing each other. Of course, if it was romantic kissing, my parents would tell me off loudly, saying, what are these dirty things you watch? And I would immediately change the channel. But it wasn't just romantic touching. I found scenes of parents hugging kids so alien, because that never happened in my home or the homes of people around us. Love was shown through so many other ways, My mum would cook my favourite dishes, for example. Or I'd hear her telling the neighbours how well I'd done in school, but she'd never tell me. Love was never shown through physical acts of affection. No hugs, no kissing, no nothing. And as I've grown up, I've realised that I'm a very physical sort of person. And I would have really loved to be hugged. Isn't that sad? I'd love to speak to you about the Moms Project, the Marshall Plan for Moms. Right? Now Moms First, yes. Tell me more about it. It's about kind of getting the world to appreciate women's work, right? At Whether it's at home yeah, or outside. Yeah, I mean, basically it's, listen, like we are never getting to gender equality yeah. until we have paid leave, affordable childcare, and pay equity. So if you look yeah. at the trajectory of a woman, quite frankly, anywhere in the world, yeah. she crushes middle school, she's top of her class in college she's highly sought after you know i mean any company she goes to and then the minute she becomes a mother she's pushed out of the workforce yeah so there's a reason why now for three four five decades you know you have the high most highest educated you know i mean group of cohort of women but like you have five times more women leaving the workforce you know i mean that we've had in the past five years because you are basically doing two and a half jobs and there's no structural support And so that was a big aha for me during the pandemic. And so I stepped off of being the CEO of Girls Who Code. And I said, you know, I can teach a million girls to code, but I don't help their mothers. If I don't change the structure, 
if we keep trying to fix women, because the way we've dealt with, again, trying to understand why do we have this constant leaky pipeline? Why are we not at 50%, you know what I mean, of Fortune 100 CEOs women? Why we don't have a female president in the United States? And yeah. again, this is a global problem, right? When yeah. you don't, when yeah. you look at the top level of leadership, yeah. you know, or, or the top of pay equity, or even, you know what I mean, home ownership, right? We're not there. Even though if you look strictly at our education or our earning potential, it doesn't, so it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's there's a direct correlation with motherhood. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. the way you solve that are these three things. And I think the way we've been trying to solve it is by saying, when was your problem? You just mm-hmm. need a little more confidence. You need to get a mentor. You had to color code your calendar. Like it's been about fixing women and mm-hmm. not saying, oh, well, actually, we've never designed workplaces to ever work for you. Yeah. That's why. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're yeah. sliding back. So we're on a mission to get paid leave and affordable childcare in as many places and spaces by 2028. So one, we're working with companies. So we've launched an, something called the National Business Coalition on Childcare to start getting companies to start subsidizing and supporting childcare, treating childcare the way that you treat healthcare. You wouldn't go work for an employee that wasn't providing some mm-hmm. form of healthcare for you and your family because it's just fundamental. And, you know, in the world, you know, 40% of parents are in debt because of childcare. You know, it's often the largest cost center, I should say, in countries where childcare is not being provided. So childcare care in general is critical for women's participation in the labor force because most women work to work. Absolutely. And again, adding a cultural lens to that, moms kind of worked around us as South Asian girls, you know, growing up. But there was very rarely any value attached to their labor. You know, moms woke up first thing in the morning, they made your breakfast, they gave you their lunch and she was waiting for you when you came home, whatever, you know, whether you're a traditional mom or you went to work, you still did all the work. And there was never any value attached to that. And guilt, right? Like, I mean, I think about my mother, like she was an engineer. She's amazing. She was so good at her job, but every day she had to be like, I hate working because for her then like success with being able to stay home and take care of your kids. Yeah. That's very much a cultural thing, but they couldn't afford to do that. And in yeah. reality, the thing is they really did love their work. Yeah. I mean, my mother retired at like 75, like long yeah. after we were gone. So it yeah. was never about us. She actually wanted yeah. to work, but she didn't have the support that she needed. Now, one of the things I think is interesting for my family is my father did a lot of unpaid labor. My dad did the cooking. He did my laundry, mm-hmm. right? He was an, they were, they did have gender parity in mm-hmm. unpaid labor because they had to, because they were poor working class as they, as they struggle. So my dad did pick me up from school. He was very engaged yeah. and very involved. Yeah. So in many ways, yeah. their marriage or their relationship, it was an ideal for me of what the world should quite frankly look like. But I think when you're struggling, you yeah. have to do that. What about you? Have Because you've talked about failure. We've talked about kind of the perfectionism. Any kind of setbacks apart from the Congress episode you told me about that have helped you in your own journey? Oh my God, so many stuff. I mean, listen, I, I had 10 years of fertility journey. I wanted to be a mother so bad yeah. and it was not easy for me. But it was, again, I think I learned what pain and heartache is when you want something so bad and that you feel like the world is conspiring for you. And when you have to shop, I mean, I would have a miscarriage and an hour later be in a room full of donors having to raise <sighs> money for Girls Who Code or be in a room full of girls having to speak to them. Like I never got to take care of my own self and my own 
pain because I thought that this was the price that I had to pay for making the world a better place. And um, so I never really got to sit in many ways with my own suffering. You know, right now I'm in the practice of like deeply studying the Bhagavad Gita and really kind of learning about this. And, you know, my, my guru, my teacher saying to me, it's like, we can't actually learn and have compassion for other people's suffering until we have compassion for our own. And I think I've spent most of my life not actually having compassion for my own suffering because it was always something I had to move through to get to where I was going. And um, that has been a big failure, big failure. Because I think what happens is then you get on a mind-body loop and you're disconnected from your heart. I think I've failed on self-care most of my life. Yeah. <laughs> like I get an F, yeah. you know what I mean? On like self-care. Yeah. And yeah. and I'm and, and and just like any like I was just watching a basketball fan that I really like this guy Giannis that I really loved was giving a talk about this. Someone said, How does it feel to keep losing all these games? And he's like, It's not failure, right? It's like you're it's basically driving towards a goal and you yeah. kind of hit, miss your goal sometimes yeah. and then you yeah. learn. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But if you don't ever put yourself in the position yeah. to have these goals that you will miss. You don't yeah. learn. And and that's yeah. the thing. I think for a lot of us as women, yeah. we don't actually really put ourselves out there yeah. to yeah. fail because we're terrified that it will break us. Absolutely. And then we miss out on our biggest potential. Tell me, Reshma, if five-year-old Reshma was sitting here, what would this Reshma say to that Reshma? I think I would, de- I mean, I would definitely say be comfortable in your own skin. You know, I would st- think I would still say, Focus on bravery, not perfection. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Any words or wisdom or anything for all the listeners of the Masala podcast who I have no doubt will be listening to you thinking, oh my God, she's amazing. I mean, I would just say again, I think pursue failure, pursue making mistakes, right? Don't yeah. like, you know, I waited till I was 33 to take the biggest leap in my life. And maybe and I do have maybe regrets that I actually didn't go for what I wanted earlier. That I didn't understand or learn that lesson. I think the second thing is, is that like pursue hard things, pursue the things that terrify you, like sit in your own comfort and like that's where you should go. And I think the third thing is, especially for all of our brown girls, is like have fun, yes. find joy. Like at the end yes. of the, and trust me, I'm like 47. So it's like I'm, and, and now I don't. I don't, I used to, I need, I needed the Ivy League degree. I needed the recognition. I needed to prove probably to my father or my mother, right, that I was worthy. And now, you know, I always say like, you know, after I built Girls Who Code, I don't need to do anything else in my life. I'm good. And so I'm at this place now and I'm on the spiritual journey right now, which is bringing me so much joy because it's about me and my own personal growth and not an external accolade that I need or that I think I need. And it, it's such a gift to feel that free now. Not I'm in the journey, you know? Yeah. So I'm still unlearning my bad practices or my bad habits. But like, like I would just encourage people to pursue that in their life early. Thank you so, so much, Rishma. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you. You're inspiring. You're kind of life-affirming in so many ways. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to Masala Podcast. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. 
dedicated to celebrating and supporting South Asian women. This is a space for all of us bad babies who don't do as we're told. This is where we get to celebrate our culture our way and be exactly who we want to be. I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or my website soulsutras.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Anushka Tate, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty. I'd love to share this podcast that I enjoy. Tuck it out with Ami Tucker. It's all about South Asian trailblazers. Ami and her guests talk about the messiness of growing up South Asian. We all know about that. They also talk about how being South Asian has shaped their personal and professional journeys. Go listen to Tuck It Out with Ami Tucker wherever you get your podcasts.